I would rather look really intelligent by the market than really stupid by my underwriter. I'll let you think about that for a minute, but you know, if I can get the deal to work and I can look at a 16 to 20% IRR on a five-year hold with these kind of assumptions, that leaves a lot of room for me to look like an absolute genius rather than making the assumption that what I have today is going to stay that way for three to five years. And so it gives us the opportunity to take really good advantage of things, but not get ourselves in a situation where we find ourselves over the barrel and out of cash. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build a passive wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Shannon Rodnett. Today, you're going to learn the ins and outs of a unique asset class that is all around us in real estate. Specifically, we're talking about industrial real estate investing. We dig into the business model, how development of industrial real estate works, and we dig into some fairly common misconceptions about the industrial space. A lot of folks think that American manufacturing and industrial space usage is declining, and that is just not true. We dig into that and so much more today. We talk about the business model of industrial real estate investing, again, getting into development, value add, and so much other information about this unique asset class that is all around us, but we might not have the experience of thinking about, or we might not know how it works. Really interesting conversation. Shannon is a wealth of knowledge, and he shares a ton with us today. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lodge. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. To date, I've acquired, partnered on, or had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially partnering with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe if you're enjoying the show. And once again, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I really do appreciate that so much. Appreciate your feedback and that helps other people learn about the show. All right, let's go with Shannon. Shannon, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm excited to dive in and talk about industrial real estate investing. But before we dive into the nitty gritty of the subject, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself, your background, and really what got you to where you are today? Yeah, you know, a lot of what I what I am today came because of the family I was born into. I didn't realize it, but I was born into poor dad family from rich dad, poor dad, right? And my dad was a builder developer. My mother was a third generation realtor. And all I ever saw happen was deals at the dinner table, right? I mean, my dad would come home and talk about this property he found. My mom would talk about who would want to buy it. And I grew up with that and I really didn't like it growing up. So I thought I'm going to go into maybe computer information systems or something that was really kind of the hot topic at the time. But I quickly realized that that was only going to create a job. And so from there, I, I ventured back into the real estate field at the ripe old age of 20. I've been in the field now for 30 years. I've done everything from police stations and fire stations to city halls, medical facilities, schools. And in that journey, I watched my father retire at 50 years old with cash flow. And he did that on industrial mainly. And I did my first industrial deal in 2001. I still have two of the original tenants in the building. So 19 years later, they've paid for their portion of the building for sure, and they're still paying rent, right? And so I saw how that journey could take me somewhere better than a builder. And about five years ago, we really quit building buildings for other people. 
and have really just focused on developing new properties for ourselves and the people that we work with. Awesome. So yeah, I want to dive in and really learn about industrial real estate investing here. And and aside from the awesome deal that you mentioned, what you love about it so much, but let's first define some terms. Tell us how you define or how you think about what an industrial deal is, like what makes an industrial property? Well, you know, used to be when you think of industrial, you think of that rusty old building down by the railroad tracks that had scrap iron scattered all around it, right? I mean, that's what most people think about. But, you know, you think about the million square foot buildings that Amazon leases, right? Those are warehouse facilities. You think about the small bay industrial, which I really like, that are two to 10,000 square feet that you have every, everything from window tinting people to pond guys to gymnastics facilities to cabinet makers, you know, all different kinds of startup businesses. It's really the first step out of the garage, right? And then you've got larger facilities that are single tenant, maybe 30, 40, 50,000 square feet that people are doing business out of, right? And so it's really kind of, it's anything from light manufacturing to warehouse storage to, you know, installation and things like that. I mean, we've even had people that build way back in the day, they built computer cords for Hewlett Packard, right? And they would make the cord end to end and make it the right length and do all that. And that's all they did was make computer cords, right? So there's really a wide, wide swath of Americana that fits into these businesses or fits into these spaces. And it's been a very, very stable asset class, maybe not as sexy as multifamily because of, you know, cap rates and all of that, but it's incredibly stable and it's incredibly necessary in America. Very cool. So let's dig into how you create value in an industrial deal, or do you look at it as creating value as compared to essentially buying a a cash flow stream over time? Like what, what makes a deal and how you... Well, we look at both, you know, we recently acquired a deal in Houston that somebody had built during COVID. They tenantized during COVID, so their rents were a little under market, but he did short leases on it, right? And so we had the ability to raise rents. So there's the typical value add, but in development, you're creating the original value add, right? I mean, we're building buildings. We just finished a project and just exited the project where we built the building for about three and a half million. It was worth five and a quarter when we were done based on the rents we got right? So we were able to do those kinds of things. And so you really look at it. And if you look at an area and you see a need and you're able to build that need and bring the tenant to the building, there's a lot of things there that you can do in there that 30 years in the business have taught me. But some of the main things, Taylor, that really make industrial different than multifamily is how the rents are paid, right? So in multifamily, you pay the rent, That's all you do. You pay the rent. Maybe you get a bill back. Maybe you're getting rubs back on the utilities or something like that, right? But you're not really getting a lot more than that. The thing that's awesome about industrial is they're triple net leases. So what that means is you've got the rent and then you've got the property taxes and the insurance and the maintenance and all the repairs and anything else that goes in the building goes into the triple net category. And that's all paid by the tenant. So what it really does is it creates an incredibly stable cash flow stream because property taxes don't change on you. They change on the tenant. When insurance adjusts, like a lot of people are seeing in the market right now, they're seeing insurance rates go up 50%. That just came out of their NOI. In an industrial project or a triple net project, you don't see that. 
So what you're buying for cash flow stream is your cash flow stream. And then the other thing that you have is you have business owners who are typically a little bit more financially savvy and stable than your typical apartment person, right? And so you've got somebody with a balance sheet, you've got somebody with some assets, you've got somebody that you can actually get a personal guarantee from that's worth something. The last thing that you have in those is you usually have a three to five year lease. And those leases usually have a rent adjustment rider in them. So a typical industrial deal will have a 3% or a 4% rent adjustment annually. The one thing that we do that's a little bit different is we put in a CPI rider, consumer price index rider. We've done this for 25 years, Taylor, and nobody has said anything until two years ago, right? <laughs> of course. So right. all of a sudden you can imagine we got a lot of calls in January when the rent up went up 8.7%. And we pointed them to section, I think it's section 11 in our lease where it says CPI and or 3%, whichever is greater. So you're able to protect yourself from a cash flow very, very well. And you've got somebody that they signed the initial term for five years, but they built their business there. Their customers know they're there. They're not going to take their time, pull their whole business offline, pay their employees to move them only to come back and set it up in a new location to save 50 bucks like an apartment person will over you raising the rent. So those are some of the things that I really like about it that are nuanced that really create security in how you're able to predict your cash flow and how you're able to stabilize that asset. Besides the fact that they trade about a one and a half to 2% higher on the cap rate, which gets you better cash flow to start with. Okay. So in that CPI situation when you were getting those calls. Sounds like you didn't lose any of your tenants at that point, just to confirm they, on that. They didn't have the option to get out. Mm, yeah, right? fair enough. They were in year two of a five-year lease. They signed the, it was right there while they didn't like it. But here's the other thing too, Taylor. If you're thinking about a 10,000 square foot space and your rent went from $10,000, it went up 9%, you know, that's $900 a year just in this example, that's not going to put somebody out of business. Where you're talking about an apartment, somebody would likely move over a 10% increase in rent, right? If there was any availability anywhere, they would go look. But if you think about $900 on a $10,000 rent for a business, that's not even one day of the employees loading stuff in boxes to load in a truck to move, right? So you really have a different balance of who's in there and and what the owner is thinking about whether or not they're packing up and moving over the deal. Gotcha. Okay. So you touched on higher cap rates for industrial as compared to other commercial real estate asset classes, which for the listeners out there essentially means that the prices are a little bit lower on a cash flow basis. So you get higher cash flow per price and everything. So there's, it's, you know, we don't need to get down to the weeds in that, but when you're developing new what that means is that your potential exit value is lower. And what I'm driving yeah. at is here, how do you think about the construction costs and your potential exit price if you're not just going to hold the property, especially when cap rates are higher in industrial as compared to other asset classes? Uh, well, you know, the reality is we never build a project just to sell a project. We build a project to hold for three to five years and harvest some of that, take the bonus depreciation, all the things that you get to do. However, as we've all seen, there's been that unsolicited offer that's too good to pass up, right? And mm -hmm. we've taken it. Of course, why wouldn't we? You know, one deal, we hit our 10-year projection in month 22. 
I can't turn that down. And so the reality is when you're building that, you're building it with a long-term vision. And I think that's part of the problem that's happened in our real estate market lately, Taylor, is people have shortened that window and they've looked at things that, hey, we're going to exit this in 24 months. Okay. Mm -hmm. That gives you a 22% IRR. But what if that 22 months gets stretched to five years? Now, all of a sudden, that's a nine or a 10% IRR, which is why you've got a 22-month window on it. But the reality is real estate, as you and I know, is never a short game. It's a long game. It's not a get rich quick. So we always build that three to five-year window at a minimum that, that we're going to hold that. And we've done very, very well because when market conditions move in our favor, we get to shorten that timeline. We get to make that an option. And if market conditions move against us, we're protected from that because we have five-year leases. Nice. Okay. So as the economic conditions change, and they have over your time as a real estate investor, how do you think about shifting or not shifting your strategy in the industrial space when it comes to buying existing properties versus developing versus other ways in which you might adjust your strategy in changing market conditions? Well, you know, here's the thing, Taylor, we're adjusting back to what I've known most of my career, right? <laughs> I mean, the reality is when I did my first industrial deal in 2001, I think I got an 8% in loan. The deal worked at 8%. And so I really haven't changed my underwriting. So there's been a lot of stuff over the last couple of years that I didn't even touch with a 10-foot pole because I don't understand a four and a half cap right? I'll sell at a four and a half cap, but I'm certainly not a buyer. And when I look at a refinance, I don't look at a refinance at four and a half or 5%. I look at a refinance at eight. You know, we've got some stuff that we're doing now that is that our refinance are forecast at 9%, right? So when we look at that, we have the ability to do that. Now, I can't project if I've got a 9% interest rate in there, I'm not going to produce a 32% IRR in my modeling, but then again, a savvy investor knows that a 32% IRR is an anomaly. That's not normal for the market. Now, it's happened a lot over the last 24 months or 36 months, but the pain is now starting for those that thought that that was the normal. So when I look at underwriting a deal, I've, I've not adjusted my theories and my thresholds to the point that I'm shortening up my timelines or I'm building stuff just to sell it or I'm underwriting, you know, I'm underwriting with a guideline and a cap rate that is very reasonable, that I would be very happy to get, that, you know, we had a deal that we're almost done with construction on. We're going to roll it into a, a full service, into our long-term hold portfolio. But we underwrote that at a six and a quarter exit, right? Back when cap rates were sub four. But here's, here's the other theory, and I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I would rather look really intelligent by the market than really stupid by my underwriting, <laughs> right? I'll let you think about that for a minute, but you know, if I can get the deal to work and I can look at a 16 to 20% IRR on a five-year hold with these kind of assumptions, that leaves a lot of room for me to look like an absolute genius rather than making the assumption that what I have today is going to stay that way for three to five years. And so it gives us the opportunity to take really good advantage of things, but not get ourselves in a situation where we find ourselves over the barrel and out of cash. 
Makes sense. And these are all reasons where personally, I don't like IRR as a metric, not because it's a flawed calculation, but because I think a lot of folks haven't taken the time to build the intuitive feeling for how much the hold period impacts your IRR and just shifting things up by 12 months as exactly like you've mentioned, the market kind of did for a couple of years there, the transaction uh, rate really sped up. That made a lot of people look like geniuses and made some awesome IRRs, but certainly not to the not comparable to the historical average. I'd like to dig a little bit more into typical debt terms, what you see in terms of loan to value ratios, or how do because I'm not a developer, I don't know the answer to these questions. How do lenders think about things like DSCR on a property that doesn't exist yet? Like, what are some of those metrics that they think about when you're taking out debt to build a new industrial property? Well, you know, Taylor, again, this is where a lot of people over the last 36 months have found themselves in trouble because the bank looks at value add different than development, right? And mm -hmm. so I'm very happy that I'm in the development camp with most of my stuff because it kept me from doing stupid stuff, right? <laughs> I'm just going to say that I do have a propensity to do some dumb things once in a while. But when you look at that, what they look at is on the development side, the best I've seen is 75% loan to cost, not loan to value. So I've got a $10 million project. They're going to loan me seven and a half million. The other thing that they do is they pull an appraisal based on what rents are today and what this property would be valued at. Then they run a further calculation and say, okay, at where we feel mortgage rates are going to be at the time of your completion, here is the DSCR. And in order to do that, you have to get to that 125 DSCR, 125% debt coverage, in order for us to loan you that. So we may adjust that back to a 70% loan to cost, a 67% loan to cost, even lower if your projections are outside of that. The reality is when I get done, I've got more of a safety net as far as what my end result is going to be so that I'm not where some people are finding themselves today, unable to get from the debt they had to the new debt that they need without bringing in more capital, right? And so that's an unfortunate thing that a lot of people are learning right now is that 80% LTV that was available at the 125 DSCR of 24 months ago has now become that same one, two, five is now the constraint at the interest rate that they have that's putting them at 65% LTV on the refi. So not only has their value changed, but their ability to borrow on it's changed. So they've got to do cash in refining. Now, I don't know if you know banking that well, Taylor, but cash in refinances is not what people want to do. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it changes things. And so growing up the way that I did and having spent the, as much time in the industry as I have, I would rather be conservative and come in with 30 to 35% of the value of the deal in equity up front, know that I've got these other parameters that are checked by third parties, not me, because I can get, you know, I can pistol whip my spreadsheet to say almost anything I want, right? Exactly, yeah. Or pencil whip, right? Change it around and erase it. <laughs> But at the same time, it protects my investors. It protects my outcome. And it, as you know, the more capital you bring to a deal, the more equity you bring to the deal, it's going to lower your returns, but it's going to increase your safety net. Absolutely. So 
what are your thoughts about the future of commercial real estate over the next, let's say, year or so? Particularly, you know, you've been more than happy to to share your, um, shall we say, disdain? I don't know, concern for for some business plans that were executed over the last couple of years, particularly as they relate to debt. So, you know, considering your extensive experience in real estate investing and you know where you stand today, what do you think is going to happen in commercial real estate over the next? you know, rest of 2023 and into 2024? Well, I think, Taylor, that we're going to see cap rates are going to continue to expand a little bit. This is the first time in a long time that you've seen cap rates be lower than interest rates, right? And in a lot of cases, we think we see things trading and being re, being financed at, at five and a half, six percent that are still trading on a four and a half cap, right? That's not a good business model. But because there's been so much that's happened in the last 36 months of this retrading, you're going to see the pain is going to have to come to a head and some of these assets are going to be sold. With that, I think you're going to see, you know, institutional investors and everybody else has kind of backed away a little bit. They've, they've kind of gone back to what is more of a normal underwriting. And so I think you're going to see prices continue to soften. I think you're still going to see demand be high in markets. I mean, look at the markets of Tennessee and North Carolina and Texas. They're still exploding. Population is still growing. There's still a need. There's still a demand. Wage is still growing. So there's still need for new product. But at the same time, some of the other products are going to reprice a little bit. They're going to come more in line with maybe where they should have been the whole time, right? But with that, there's going to be some value to be bought, right? There's going to be some opportunities there for those that didn't get into situations that they're having to recapitalize and things like that. They'll be able to deploy that capital that they were going to put in an old deal into a new deal and create that. So I think that, look, even in 2009 and 2010, there were buyers and there were sellers, right? And there was a lot of people made a lot more money in 09 than they did in 05. And so the reality is that I think that as a real estate entrepreneur, your main focus should be is what is a deal and how do I properly underwrite that deal? Because I think you're going to see a lot more on the table. I'm seeing deals now, Taylor, that that you've got 30 days to look at a property before it goes under contract. Gone are the days of million-dollar non-refundable earnest monies at day one, right? And mm -hmm. and that's normal. The 30 days on the market is normal. The being able to do your due diligence with earnest money up but refundable is normal, not the non-refundable stuff. So I think as the market kind of goes back to normal, you're going to see, unfortunately, there's going to be some people that are going to feel some pain. They're going to lose some money. But I think the market as a whole is still strong because demand is still strong. And demand is shifting. It's shifting into areas that don't have the product. North Carolina is on fire because there's the product doesn't exist. You know, Texas is on fire because businesses are moving out of unfriendly business states to places where their money does work for them and they do have landlord rights. So I think you're still gonna see lots and lots of stuff is gonna happen. The real estate sector is gonna remain strong, but it's not gonna be 2020 strong, right? Makes sense. So for someone out there, if they wanna get into industrial real estate investing, are there any books, resources, or other places that they could go to learn more about that niche? Because there's a lot out there about single family, multifamily, all those other asset classes, but not a ton that I've seen about industrial. Well, you know, one of the great resources is a common place that you would go for your, your multifamily information 
let's say you wanted to look at Dallas, Texas, you would go to maybe the Collier's website to get their insight on the market. They also have an office and industrial section. So most of the major brokers are going to have a lot of information about their market and about that market sector where you can get that information. You can kind of see what cap rates are at. Crexy's another one. LoopNet's another one where you can get information on deals. And, you know, the reality is the whole sector of industrial moves slower than multifamily. It just does. Because if you look at the, at the sector as a whole, there's a lot more institutional players in the industrial space than there are in the multifamily space. And they've been doing it a lot longer, right? So they understand the speed at which business gets done. They understand the speed of what really needs to happen in order for a good deal to be analyzed. And so there's a lot of information like that. But the flip side of that is there's not a lot of books that have been written on the topic of how to invest in industrial, but because it does move slower and the cap rates are higher, there's obviously a little bit more built-in protection for those that want to dip their toe into it and get it figured out because they're not going to be in a situation where million-dollar earnest monies are due day one. <laughs> okay, so LoopNet, Crexy, Collier's, other brokers, I think Marcus and Millichap. Marcus I don't know and Millichap, have, uh, yep, they've got a they great segment there. Yep, you know, Lee and Associates, just any major market player will have that information. But there's no book, at least that we're aware of. So maybe there's an opportunity for you to write a book. And when you do, certainly <laughs> let us know yeah, about it. But right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Shannon, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? You know, I think the best investment I've ever made is being important to important people. And what I mean by that is being in a place where I can participate with others with my skill set to see their skill set. So it's it's kind of like education. I see you smirking. It's kind of like education, but I've been paid to play, right? So as a general contractor, I was able to come into deals and go, I can build that project. Show me how you finance that project, right? And so I've been able to take that and actively participate in deals by bringing my skill set and finding other partners that don't have my skill set but have access to capital or are really good at lending and underwriting. And I've been able to insert myself there and actively walk out my education so that I'm now getting paid to do the 202 class of how to learn how to do real estate. Awesome. I love that. No, I think that's great advice. I was just thinking, how might I relate to that? And frankly, through hosting a podcast, this has been one of my best ways to get educated about real estate outside of doing my own deals. And I think in a way that's being important to important people, but I will look for opportunities to level up my importance to important people. I love that phrase. I hope everybody takes that to heart. But right now, we're going to go on to our second question. We had the best investment. Now we go to the second one. What is the worst investment you ever made? The worst investment I ever made was a quick one. We did a deal. It was one of those, it needed to happen fast. We thought we were buying it way under market. Some of our due diligence wasn't in place that should have been. And we got into a small apartment complex, took more to fix than we thought. Rents were a little bit lower. We were in a very, very tertiary market. And so we got out with our skin, but it was not a pretty one. Hmm. Interesting. What are your thoughts on tertiary markets today? You know, I like markets that are growing. I will look at any market that has strong growth patterns and that has a reason for people to move there. This particular one 
was a tertiary market that didn't have the growth pattern that it should have had. And so now I pay a lot more attention to what is going on that is making this an attractive place to live. Why are people moving to the area? What kind of jobs are being created? I pay a lot more attention because Taylor, I would really love to have a mediocre deal in a super hot market, right? <laughs> yes. Then a yes. hot deal, a smoking deal. I would, you know, buy in a 10 cap in a market that is mediocre because then you have the market moving for you. You know, Warren Buffett says a rising tide floats all boats. Well, if you're in a stagnant pond, your boat's not going to do much. And when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. That right. brings us to my favorite question here at the end of the show. What is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? You have to keep going. I mean, the reality is if you find a guy that's not lost money, you're talking to the wrong guy, right? You're going to win. You're going to lose. But are you going to learn and are you going to keep doing it? There's a lot of people that got into the tech space and then got out when the bubble burst in 01. There's a lot of people that got into real estate in 06 and got out when that happened in 08. But the people that you see that are winning, the people that are getting their financial goals met, they're getting their lifestyle goals met, are the people that keep going. And so the most important thing you have to do is you have to get up and you have to create a repeatable process where year after year after year after year, you're continuing to learn and continuing to invest. Awesome. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this knowledge. If folks want to reach out or get in touch or learn more about what you're up to, where can they track you down? Easiest place to go is just shannonrobnet.com. We've got all our information's right there. All my social handles are there. Even a link to my calendar. We can get on a 15-minute call and we can chat. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show. And I get to see that your ratings and reviews. I get to see that you're engaging with the content and escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.